0: are you in need of a pace clock looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks the swim nerd pace clock is the most innovative digital pace clock go to swimpractice.com to check it out
1: all right stacyana winfield welcome to the podcast how are you doing
0: thank you good i'm doing great how are you
1: doing i'm great now where are you coming from you look like you're in the back seat of the car
0: I am I'm in my car a uh, front seat actually driver's seat that's I like the driver's seat um no I'm at I'm at work it's on my lunch break and uh the internet is terrible in my office so I figured I didn't want to drop out of this and jump in my car and talk to you
1: good idea well what are you doing these days where do you work
0: um I'm at St. Margaret's Episcopal School San Capistrano I teach PE and sixth grade health which is Amazing. <laughs> awesome. Um, it's nice. It's my first job. I've never commuted. So I'm I'm 10 minutes from work. I can ride my bike. It's, it's been great. Now I
1: was talking to Dave Denniston the other day about you, a good friend of yours, and he was telling me you're doing some interesting things with your PE class. It might be a little bit unusual. Talk to me about that.
0: Um, yeah, so actually quite a number of things. Um, you know, being my background is swimming. We don't have a pool at our school, which is unfortunate. Um, and I'm addicted to hot yoga and I, have been doing yoga for 20 years. So, um, bringing yoga and breathing mechanics and breathing techniques, um, to my students has been, um, phenomenal. Like I've, I've noticed this increase in gratitude when the class ends, it's the only class where they, they thank me after and it's like, wow, we must be doing something right. You know? <laughs> and, um, I've really gotten into, um, breathing, like, uh, breathing mechanics. And I mean, you know, there's, there's so many people out there that are doing it, but originally I thought it was like just for big wave surfers. You know, I'm like, oh, that, that, I don't need that, right? But we did so much in training, hypoxic. I know, I know, I'm sure you did mm-hmm. as well. And um, the benefits, uh, there's a, a Huberman, Dr. Huberman out of Stanford, the Huberman lab. Um, he's just had some incredible. Um, research data on breathing mechanics and um, reducing anxiety reducing stress which we all need right now right um in the time of covid so it's been fun to bring that to my students and play with it a little bit
1: how was this received because it's pretty unusual to to do this with um kids what what age groups are we talking right now
0: uh right now i'm doing like 10 through 15 year olds okay um so you know younger but i think um you know, if you, if you present it in a way that is developmentally appropriate, right, and clear and concise and they understand um, kind of the, the mechanics behind it and the relevance, right? So I found, I found now more than ever, the student population wants to know why. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing something, you know, and giving it a little bit of relevance and then introducing it in a way that they can connect with and maybe feel the difference in their own body and their own mind um, it's transformational for them, you know, and they they beg me for Savasana now, which is the last <laughs> posing yoga where you just lay down and, um, you know, work on your breath and be still. And we don't have a lot of moments in our lives anymore where we're just still, right. Yeah. There's constantly stimulus coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a really cool way for them to feel still, you know, and, and check in with how they actually are feeling present, you know, not their mind, but their body.
1: Was it difficult for you to present this to the, um, you know, to your bosses to say, hey, this is kind of the angle I want to take? And did you have to sell it to them?
0: You know, I'm really grateful the position I'm in. Um, I'm department chair of the PE department. So I get to kind of organize and develop curriculum. Um, and I have the support of administration to do so. So because I'm a private school, it's been really wonderful to introduce this. And I think if you have happy kids, administration's happy, right? So if they're expressing gratitude, they're telling their parents, they're practicing meditation at home with their parents. I mean, it's been it's been kind of fun to see the progression of it over the f- past few years. Um, you know, I feel like everyone is on board, so that's it's nice
1: it's, it seems very useful for their future lives. You know, if you can learn this at a young age, this is going to be something that you can carry with you. I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with athletes now, professional athletes where I'm telling them to go back and, learn these techniques and learn meditation to kind of slow themselves down, their whole life is coming at them. And there's so much stress and so much stimulus that it's like, we've got to learn to take in and breathe and and, and slow down a lot. So this is, this is stuff that's going to help them throughout their whole life, right?
0: Absolutely. I wish I would have studied neuroscience in college because the science behind the research behind breathing um, is incredible. What's coming out and how it affects our central nervous system, our brain. It's all connected. Right. And, mm-hmm. and then in turn, our, our body, right, the soma. So it's it's incredible to um, feel the difference in myself, knowing that it's going to help me. Right. And because I've had a lot of adversity in my life, dealt with a ton, Um basically trauma right and Mm -hmm. figuring out reaching out and finding out what do I need to do to release that trauma so that I'm okay daily and I don't have triggers you know and um that's been life life life-changing for me in the last few months actually COVID kind of accelerated a lot of it and I was I was digging for something deeper and I found some pretty cool things to work through
1: are you leading this yourself are you teaching teachers to to do this within their classes as well or is this just you alone
0: I'm leading it myself right now. Um, I've had some teachers be a part of it and learn it. Um, I think the hardest part for a lot of teachers is to be comfortable teaching it, yeah. um, especially if they don't have a lot of experience in it. I mean, I've had 20 years of, of really amazing yoga teachers kind of, you know, introducing some of the breathing mechanics and so awesome me. And then obviously my swim coaches. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, but, but the more you read and research, if you're into it, right, like I'm passionate about it. So yeah. you can't really give passion to another teacher they have to want to do it too
1: i don't know much about it myself in terms of how you would um you know build a curriculum how how did you go about building a curriculum in terms of getting progression with this type of teaching
0: well you have to look at it from um beginning to end and top bottom, right? So you're looking at it both ways. So for me, if I'm dealing with different age groups, um, you can't take a 10-year-old through an hour long yoga class unless you're going to bring in, you know, basically their attention span is shorter, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to bring in, um, you know, metaphors about trees and positions and and be silly with it, right? Or they're Mm -hmm. going to lose interest quickly. Um, You're going to deal with that differently on the high school level where they're ready. They're ready for some of that more mature. They have more um, kind of control over their body and their mind a little bit. Um, And so building the curriculum, you look at those baby steps, how can I do this? So basically it's been a three year progression. So I started in third, fourth, fifth grade, PE, teaching them just basics and salutations, um, breathing techniques, belly breathing, right? Um, I took some certification courses on mindfulness and breathing to try and develop curriculum for that age group specifically. Um, And then it just builds, it snowballs. So now those third, fourth, fifth graders are in sixth, seventh, eighth, and I'm seeing the, you know, the fruit of that labor and, and them too, where they want it, they love it and they it's not something strange. Right. So three mm-hmm. years ago doing it with middle school, it was strange to them. They've never done it. And it was kind of silly and awkward and, and weird. Um, but now it's like, well, they're all they're all drinking the Kool Aid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say,
1: have you seen some of your students? Obviously, you've been doing they've been doing this for three years now. There's there's some level of mastery in a way, but there's also got to be a development of passion too. Some of these must have some of the students must really be embracing this.
0: You know what I found, um, which is really neat at the the school level, is that in our school, specifically athletics and competition is really important. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think you could see that at all schools, like, you know, middle school, college, all of that right through, um, there's a certain kid that knows at 10 years old, they don't want to compete and they don't like sports. They know, right. They, they, they own that. Um, and those are the kids that I was trying to pull in. To develop a love for moving and a passion for moving because it's lifelong health right you can be great at math but math isn't going to keep you alive right so like how do you how do you um, cultivate these life skills where they develop a passion and interest for something that's going to keep them moving and healthy right and that was kind of my goal in teaching um so introducing this yoga especially like i'm in thinking in particular of one student she hated athletics. She hated ball sports. She always cowered and was afraid. Um, and she got into my first yoga class and she completely blossomed and I saw her strength and her confidence. And it was like, this is for you, Mm. you know? And, and she wanted, I mean, she begged like, can we do it again? That was so great. And she felt confidence in that. Right. And she'd never felt that before in a PE class. And I, I was special.
1: Yeah, uh, that's great when you get those ones that connect like that and, and yeah. can come around. So that's awesome. Well, listen, half my audience kind of listens to my podcast and the other half watches my podcast. So for those that are, are listening and might not be able to see you right now, you have had some adversity in your life. Uh, I mean, understandably. So I, I believe um, the the biggest uh, challenge you faced was somewhere around the age of 12. Talk to me what happened around that
0: age. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm going to, to correct you. It hasn't been the biggest challenge, but it was the biggest challenge at that age, right? Up to 12 years old. Um, I lost my hair, uh, basically it started falling out at the age of 12 for to alopecia universalis. Um, I connected it with uh, cancer. I didn't understand the details of chemotherapy and you need, you know, that's what makes you lose your hair. And so I immediately thought I was dying and I was probably a little bit pre-hormonal dramatic 12 year old, you know, but going to my mom and and saying, you know, mom, I'm dying, you know, with this hair, this trash can full of hair.
1: It was just coming out in clumps.
0: Yeah. I would like brush my hair and kept cleaning out the brush. Right. And there's just a ton of hair in the trash can. And I I kind of freaked out really scary. Right. Um, and she, she said, you know, both my parents supported me and said, well, let's go to the doctor. We don't think you're dying. You know, you're a swimmer, you're healthy, all this. And, um, they confirmed you have alopecia. Um, the hardest part, I think in the beginning for me was the lack of bedside manner for the doctors, right? Not realizing, um, the, the mental health that was going to be an issue for me, right. Versus the physical, they all said, you're fine. You're not dying. And I thought like, i'm a 12 year old girl without hair like i can't go to school like this i can't be bald like i'm not fine you know but so the transition was really really challenging to go back to school um and i was scared i wore hats for a year Um, oh really really yeah just in public i didn't want to face it i was hiding from it i was praying every night for my hair to come back um but is this
1: something that's just permanent once once it goes that's it it's gone
0: No, that's the hard part. So it varies so much from person to person. Um, It it can happen at puberty, but a lot of times at any age, it can happen. It can be in clumps. It can be little patches. It can be your whole body. Um, So for me, I had Universalis. It happened around puberty. um, And then it it came back the first summer after I I lost it, basically, like the fall of my seventh grade year at 12. And then I wore hats that whole year. It all came back between the summer, basically between seventh and eighth grade. And I was, I never stopped swimming and swimming is definitely what saved me from just, you know, wanting to cower in a ball and not go outside. Um, because my, my swim team friends, as soon as I explained what was going on, they were like, Oh, cool. Like, that's going to make you swim faster. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, And I used it, right? I I was angry about it. And I used that anger in the pool. And I I think that helped me to get faster at swimming, you know?
1: Well, I mean, that's a pretty trying time for all of us at that age, right? Like we all go through stuff where we feel at some point uh, we're not the cool kid and and we're we're getting picked on in some way. But it must have been, you know, amplified for you at that stage. Did you experience you know times like that where where you were getting picked on over this.
0: uh yes, definitely. I mean, middle school sucks all the way around, right? Kids yeah. are mean. Yeah. Um, I think I developed this defense mechanism of like being in my bubble, right? So like tuning out, and I'm sure it's a form of mindfulness now, right? But mm-hmm. tuning out. Um, the stimulus, right? So someone's yelling at me, you know, unkind words, which happened, um, I would just tune it out. And of course, I was embarrassed, but I would just keep walking, right? Um, Or there were some people that really couldn't process it. And it wasn't just kids, I mean, adults too, right? And I had to recognize that, you know what, that's their issue. It's not mine. If I'm okay with it, then I'm okay with it, right? And for me, I think swimming gave me the confidence that I started to really grow in that. And then truthfully going to Berkeley and deciding, like, because I looked at a lot of schools, you know, and um, I was one of the top recruits in, in high school for breaststroke. So I was looking at Stanford, Northwestern, Auburn, you know, all these really top swim schools. And when I got to the campus of Berkeley, their reaction because everyone there is their own person, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, kind of embracing that. I mean, I had some woman on the street, like, Hey, nice haircut. And she was being sincere. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, man, this is the place for me, you know, yeah. and, and then being able to grow in that and gain confidence.
1: Wow. Yeah. That, that, that's gotta be the tough part about it is cause you are a confident woman. Um, you're strong, you're confident, you're, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't see any sign of, uh, you know, doubt or, or lack of confidence in you uh, outwardly, but but inwardly, where where there's still battles with that at that point in time.
0: Oh, and I would be lying if I didn't say there were today. I mean, I still struggle with it in some extent. Um, normally it's usually when i'm in a new situation right where i don't know people um but i found and i guess this is something that everyone can take away whether you're bald or you know whatever issue you feel like you have with your your physical appearance i found if i stand up you know shoulders shoulders back heart open smile on my face and i'm really social people believe it they take that energy in right Mm -hmm. where if i cower and i'm you know head down and people respond to me either way. And so I think it helped me a lot to realize, you know what, I just need to embrace this and, and show people my inside because my inside is, um, I don't know, just, you know, pretending, but like almost faking until you make it right. Be confident. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then they're going to think you're confident, right. Whether you are or not. Um, so there's a really great TED talk. Actually, you should check it out. Uh, it's about body language. And uh-huh. um, this researcher, that she's like one where she's like, student- a yes, yeah. yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I love it. and I do that. in every picture. Amy Cuddy,
1: Monster, her name not- is,
0: you know what? I don't, I can look it up later. No, it's but-
1: Amy Cuddy. Yeah. Amy Cuddy. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. That, that one is great. And I tell my, my middle school students that like, yep. this is what you need to know for life.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great TED Talk. I love that one. But it's so true. It's just it's body language. But it, I agree with you. It's the energy that you give off, um, uh, whether you have hair or not. I mean, it, it, all of us have doubts about ourselves. Or all of us lack confidence at times. Yours is maybe just uh, in people's face, but it's like it, it, we all go through it. But really, the way that you carry yourself, and I used to tell my athletes this too, it's like I can tell when you're not confident behind the block. You know, yeah. like the way you carry yourself to the block determines a lot of how this race is going to go and so you're you're just talking about that in just everyday life in terms of just the way you carry yourself the way that you're going to be received by other people uh and that confidence that you give off yeah it's pretty amazing so but i guess in terms of all this you you did have swimming as the constant you had your teammates you had you must've had a natural ability for swimming, especially breaststroke because uh, um, breaststroke is a born. They're not, um, you, you can't teach breaststroke. <laughs> you can't teach me breaststroke. I know that, but uh, I guess you were just born a breaststroker, right?
0: Well, okay. I'd say yes and no. I think um, it definitely was the stroke that I started improving in the quickest, yep. um, but my hip and, and knee flexibility wasn't that of Amanda Beard. Right. And um, I had to really work on that. I also wasn't athletic. If that makes any sense. Um, I was really kind of a terrible swimmer. Oh, hold on real quick. Sorry. You're good. Um, I was really a terrible swimmer uh growing up, just developmental, right? I didn't have a lot of early success, Mm. um, but I did a couple of things. I constantly observed my teammates and how they were swimming. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also constantly wanted to race
1: in practice
0: and, and whether they knew I was racing them or not, I was always finding someone to try and beat, whether it was on a flip turn off the wall to get off the wall faster or, you know, going further on an underwater. Um, and so when I started at Irvine Nova, I was, I basically made a national team or not, I'm sorry, a national cut, right. A senior national cut, um, on a small club team in San Diego. And my coach at the time, um, wonderful guy, but really kind of couldn't couldn't believe in my my own passion to be the best in the world Mm -hmm. right and i had told him i want to be the best in the world i want to i want to go to the olympics i want to break world records and he kind of looked at me like uh you know because i don't think he knew how to do that um so when i made the national cut amanda beard was training in irvine novas we were the same age i'd watched her in 96 olympics Um, my dad suggested we go up and check out practice and see if that's something I wanted to try and train with her. I was looking for long course pool time, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I met Dave Salo, who was the head coach at the time. And I told him, I want to be the best in the world. And he looked at me and said, well, guess what? We, you know, we have 30 kids in the water that break world records every day. They have, they have fins on, but they're doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that belief right and then as soon as i got into that environment it was like well why not
1: wow wow so i guess amanda in, in a sense was kind of your first olympic experience you probably remember sitting at home watching her at the olympics was that kind of the first memory of uh, wanting to be an olympic athlete
0: actually it goes back for me um 88 with janet evans was okay. my first mm-hmm. um and i would draw like little stick figures of me on the podium wanting you know wanting to be Janet. Um, And I was, that was my most impressionable one at seven, but I think watching Amanda in 96 was the one where I started to think like, huh, maybe this is something I could do too, you know? And, Mm. um, and then getting to practice. And I remember, you know, Amanda, it was 1997. She was injured. She was, she was just a high school kid, right? Normal high school kid. She was playing soccer. She broke her wrist snowboarding. I mean, she was just doing her thing. Right. And I was this like, you know, so excited in awe of her. And I kept saying like, Amanda Beard, oh my gosh, Amanda Beard. And she was like, my name is Amanda, like mm-hmm. stop, you know? And, <laughs> and looking back now, thank God that she was as loving and as kind as she was. Cause you know, she was, she was doing her thing, right? On her own journey. Um, And she really helped me um, throughout, through all the way through, right? Past 2000, through college, um, we became close friends cause we raced all the time together. And she kind of showed me and mentored me about what it would be to be an Olympian and, and how you deal with that.
1: Now, was she, were you and her always primarily? Were you primarily 100 and she was primarily 200, or did it did it mix a little bit?
0: Um, in the beginning, yes, she was better 200. I was better 100. We would joke and you know, college Pac-10 dual meets. You know, you take the 100, I take the 200. Of course, we both wanted to win both, but that was kind of the deal. You know, we we work it out together and laugh about it. Um, but I think she's just so phenomenal, right? So she would push that hundred as much as she could. And I would do the same with the two. So I think we were trying to make each other better that way.
1: Was there things that you were doing that were just better than her? I mean, why were you faster than her? And then why did she have a little bit more endurance than you? Was it just genetics?
0: That's a great question. I wish I could answer it. I don't know. I think, um, in terms of the 200 for me now, knowing what I know as a coach, um, I think she swam a smarter race, right? So she had more experience than me. um, And her 200 came a little more naturally because she was strategic. And I wasn't. I was, I'm going to race until I die, right? (laughs) Which wasn't very smart.
1: (laughs) You had the Dave Dennison mentality there as well.
0: (laughs) I did. You know, it took me a long time. Even, I mean, 2004 trials. So I made the Olympic teams in two thousand. 2004 trials. I missed the 100. I got fourth. You know, five girls into the wall at the same time. I got fourth. It was heartbreaking because I was. um, I didn't swim my own race. To be to be quite honest, I didn't go out as fast as I could, and I should have. So when I got to the 200, it was like, well, I have nothing left to lose. Let's go for it. And me. I, well, Tara Kirk and I, we, we broke the world, we were under world record pace at the 100. I mean, we, we swam <laughs> it so dumb, right? And we both missed the team because of it, because we just died. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I wasn't going to leave anything in the pool, you know, and, yep. and to my detriment, right? Amanda was so good about, she would just reel people in, and it was so much fun to watch her race that race.
1: Well, I, I heard, uh, qualifying for your first Olympics in 2000, you had an issue the night before you actually raced. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, actually two nights before, um, mm-hmm. we went to a restaurant. I have a really bad nut allergy uh-huh. and, uh, know fatal and we went to a restaurant and it was the steakhouse we're in indianapolis right steakhouse who who puts nuts on meat i I (laughs) didn't think about that right and i'd asked about my plate because i always ask and tell them but my teammate across the way had a elk and he's like oh my gosh you have to try this of course i will so Mm -hmm. i took a bite and uh i knew right away and i ended up telling my my coach like you know we we need to go to the hospital i I ate a nut and so we jump in the 15 passenger van we were so lucky honestly because it's four corner intersection our hotel was on one corner the restaurant was on one corner and the hospital was on the other mm, Wow! <laughs> so i ended up you know giving myself an epi pen in the back seat he's like what are you doing i'm like don't worry about it just drive you know, and, <laughs> well, um, lucky
1: lucky you carried the epi pen with you at that time
0: oh always yeah i still do to this day it's a, it saves your life right you know, yeah that, i tell, that, tell that my son everything.
1: that my son has a nut allergen he won't carry it anywhere I just, oh, i'm just like carry your epi pen
0: Right. It, it saves you. It does. you know. Yeah. But I remember being in the hospital room and crying because um, you know, drug testing happens, right? I was so nervous. You have to document everything that you take all the time. And I was so nervous I was going to get disqualified. And my coach, Dave Salo, he was in the room with me. And I remember crying at the doctor, like, no, you can't give me anything. I want to be able to make the Olympic team. And Dave looks at me and he's like, Well, you have to be alive to do that. So like, (laughs) let's go. Give them the drops.
1: (laughs) But once you, once you recovered from that, it was, I mean, how did you eventually qualify for this team? It must have, it's always nerve wracking to qualify for your first Olympic team, but especially making the U S team. That's a really big deal.
0: Yeah, it is. You know, um, it actually is a great story. So I was top five like for a couple of years, right? And so I knew I had no issue making it back to semifinals, which they take top 16. So I wasn't nervous for that first race. Mm-hmm. Um and I made it back no problem. And even going into semifinals, I was seated next to Christy Kowal, who she and I are great friends to this day, but at the time, you know, you're you're competitive with each other. So um I swam my normal race, which is go out as hard as I can with my eyes closed, I'm like swimming diagonal and the last five meters, I decide, like, my heart kind of shuts down, right? So I'm still trying hard, but I'm not giving it that last extra boost. And Christy outtouched me, and my dad had videotaped the race. And he and I watched it that night. And we I, we, I qualified for finals the next night. And I'm watching the race, and I'm looking, and I thought in my brain that she took off the last five meters on me, and she hadn't. And I thought to myself, like, oh, I have this. I can beat her because I knew I had a little bit more in the tank. Um, And so the next, the next night I did my whole routine, super superstitious. So like I put on my racing suit, I'm dancing in front of the mirror, I painted my nails. I even had half of an ice cream sandwich, which I don't recommend, but Mm. it was like, you know what, I'm just going to love it, live it up and enjoy this. Um, And ended up, you know, out touching her by one, one hundredth of a second, which was just kind of a whirlwind of emotions at that point and realizing like, wow, I, I did it.
1: now wow that's that is an incredible story it's it's such a great feeling to make that get that monkey off your back and make that team and uh be part of something huge like that very cool
0: yeah i was so relieved
1: I bet. What about your Olympic experience itself? Uh, um, I know that you did end up swimming in the morning relay, and, the, and that relay ends up winning a gold medal. How do you feel about that? I often ask, you know, people that swim on morning relays how they feel about their Olympic goal. I never got one. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to be on the morning relay. So, don't get me wrong on that. I think it's an incredible achievement. But everybody has their own varied opinions on it. What do you think about it?
0: Oh man, it's a loaded question. I, to be really honest, I'm proud of it. True. I'm really proud that I have that gold medal. I'm yeah. proud that I made the Olympic team. I think it's, um, very, it's, it's something you can't appreciate till you're further away from it. To yeah. be fair. Um, it's taken me a long time to kind of accept that, you know, there's no, there's not a lot of people in the world that have done that. And, mm-hmm. um, to kind of honor that because I did feel a little bit of shame, you know, like I'm not on the night relay. I'm, I'm one of those girls in the morning that, am you know, maybe not as important. Um, The other part of that was that the dynamics. So, you know, for swimming, it's all time standards, right? And Mm. the dynamic of making a relay on the U.S. team um, was definitely problematic. You know, it wasn't based on time. There were coaches vying for their swimmers to get in because they were making money. If that swimmer got a gold medal, Mm. the same with the swimmers. They're professional. They were making money. So it was this kind of like... um, you know, land grab, if you will, right. Of who's going to, who's going to be on that relay. And I didn't know that going in. And so it really, I became very disillusioned and angry quickly realizing, wait a minute, that spot's not mine. Like it's not guaranteed. Mm. Um, And so I remember going to my, going to Dave Salem, he wasn't, um, he had never been a, I think that was his first time being Olympic coach and he was the assistant women's coach. And I remember going to him and saying, my spot's not guaranteed, you have to fight for me because I yeah. knew other coaches were doing that. I found yeah. out, yeah. and he said, No, you're fine. And I said, No, seriously, like you need to say something, or I'm not going to be on it, you know. Yeah. And um, I was grateful that he did, and I was grateful that I was on it, you know, because there was the politics and dynamics behind it were, um, I think not fair, really shady, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways it wasn't transparent I guess is probably the best way to say that and so I ended up um qualifying being on it but almost feeling like I didn't deserve it you Mm. know and it took a long time to wrap my brain around you know what you did you did you made it let's be proud of it
1: yeah yeah um listen uh, I'm I'm on the other side of it I was on the other side of the pool deck on the Australian team our guys end up winning the four by one freestyle relay they won the gold medal I was um supposedly the fastest swimmer in the country at the time in the 50 freestyle i didn't i didn't get a, an ask to swim on the morning relay so listen i would have loved a gold medal so i look at it from the other side i'm like i would have taken a gold medal all these people that are like oh i'm not sure how i feel about my gold medal i'm like i'll take one you know
0: and, uh, that's a really good perspective right yeah yeah exactly
1: <laughs> i'm on the other side of it so i would have I'd have been glad to have it but uh but no i could see i could see your point um it's difficult but there there's certain there's certainly politics involved a lot of people don't understand that too i'm glad you brought that point up because that's that certainly uh plays a part in this as well but uh, overall your your sydney olympic experience is it is it worth it like looking back uh fighting to be an Olympic, dreaming about being an olympian fighting to be an olympian working to be one and then and then finally being one is is it worth the struggle for for you?
0: Oh, I would do it again. Yeah. Yeah, I think um absolutely. I know it's changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um you know, having a gold medal has opened doors that once I walk through, of course I have to prove myself, but mm-hmm. um I think from everyone else looking in, there's an automatic, you know, ticket. Like I to to do something else, right? There's this automatic um kind of honoring you or believing in you having faith in you that you can do something that's pretty impossible um on the other side of it i feel like the process of getting the gold medal is what made me who i am today and i i use that process and everything i do right um if that makes any sense it's not the gold medal it's leading up to it for me um, and what that took um knowing that things that are really hard are are capable are really you're capable of doing i guess
1: Why do you think you made it? I mean, it's, it's so competitive in what we do. Right. And, um, there's probably a bunch of people that maybe worked as hard as you, maybe they didn't, but why do you think you're, you're an Olympian as opposed to some people that just miss it? Is it, what does it come down to?
0: I'm bald. Come
1: on. Just speed in the water.
0: (laughs) You know what? I, I don't know. Um, I think part of it is how I was born. Right. Um, constantly optimistic. So I had so many failures. I mean, I was not consistent in winning ever, you know, making the Olympic team. I didn't even win when I made the Olympic team. I got second and I still was able to go. Right. So, mm. uh, a trials. So I didn't win a lot, but I, every time I lost or every time I, I failed at something, I would find the silver lining and find the win in that moment and figure out how to improve. Mm. Um, and then not giving up, right. Like just, I, I want it so badly internally that I'm going to keep going, you know, and um, I think it was Susie O'Neill. I think it was Susie O'Neill. Who was mm-hmm. like, you know, that you just don't give up. Right.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that was, that was something for me too. Um, but then I do, I do really believe in the mental game, right? Like everyone works really hard. Um, and that, that sense of faith and, and believing in yourself, I think is critical to be able to do it. And then yeah. a little bit of luck right like mm-hmm. maybe hair loss really did help me maybe it gave me that hundredth of a second that i needed you know i don't know
1: well maybe it gave you the belief that that's what you needed so uh, part of a lot of it is belief really honestly and, and and i agree with you i can relate to that part of the story where you say you just never gave up i mean uh, throughout my life i feel like I, I that's how my life has gone you just don't quit on something that you're passionate about right and um and, and that's really the ultimate message to kids. You, you can never guarantee that you're going to make an Olympic team, but you can guarantee that you, you won't give up until, until it's over, you know, until there's no more chances, there's no more doors that can open. There's no more ways that you can make it happen. Like when you've come to the end of the road, you'll know when the end of the road is. But a lot of the times, um, we give up way before we get to that, that end, you know, and, um, And that's like you and me, we're just people that never gave up in that sense. So I I can certainly relate to that. Um, You mentioned earlier that this hasn't been the hardest part of your story or or your life. Um, Talk to me about that. What is what's been harder than this?
0: Uh, My my late husband, um, Brett Winfield, he was a rower at Cal. We met there, Um, got married shortly after and he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer um, at age thirty five. Uh, I was 33 at the time mm. in 2015. We were living overseas in Malaysia for his work. And um, it was, it was so hard. One, to get the diagnosis, right? Stage four, there's a very, very low life expectancy. Um, basically, you have to, it's a miracle if you survive it. And I took it as, okay, we have to make another Olympic team. Like, we're going to get our team in place, right? We're going to find our doctors. We're going to get the best medicine. We're going to research. We're going to change our diet. We're going to do all of these things, right, together. And he was as ambitious and as crazy as I was. So it was pretty easy for us to kind of ride that that fight together. Um but it was extremely intense and I don't wish it upon my, my worst enemy to watch mm. someone that you love for love and care for deeply go through the process of fighting cancer um, and ultimately passing away because, you know, the the cancer itself, I believe, isn't necessarily the worst part. I think the worst part is the uncertainty and mm. the medicine. I mean, the medicine watching his body deteriorate. I mean, he was this bigger than life, man, you know, six, five and huge personality. And, um, you know, strong as an ox and never complained, like you never would know how much pain he was in. And when he finally got to It was like a year, almost, almost the two year mark. He had a two year window and they said at two years, that's the average when someone passes away from this. Mm. Um, He did 40 rounds of chemo. He did, um, you know, radiation to the liver, radiation to the brain. I mean, he did everything he could. It was insane. Right. And um, the funny part to be, to, to bring a little comical relief into this is uh, because I'm bald, and I would take him to all of his appointments. Everyone assumed I was the one that was dying. Yeah. And he never lost his hair. He was a big old beard, you know, huge oh, wow. big guy. So I'd laugh and be like, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> it's this guy, not me. It's this guy, right? And we approached it like that. We just constantly were laughing and appreciating each day together, knowing that we were on borrowed time, you know. Yeah. And um, that's the the gift of that process. But um, the hardest part for me is the PTSD from him dying. Right, mm-hmm. that that the last ten weeks of his life, you know, not being able to keep food down and seeing the things that I saw that no one else would see. Mm-hmm. Right, and then watching his spirit slowly go and his body go, and it just it's heartbreaking. Right, yeah. and every September thirtieth, I know until December twenty second was the day he died. I'm gonna relive that. Right, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to let that go and process and, um, you know, honor the time we had together versus just feeling the trauma of that has been a really big challenge for me.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I, I was with Richard quick in the six months that he had with brain cancer and, uh, and watching him deteriorate and watching what cancer did to him. It's, it's devastating. You wouldn't, you're right. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, especially somebody that you dearly love, um, and somebody that you expected to spend the rest of your life with that, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a horrible experience. And, um, is there, is there any, you know, looking back do you, do you say, I wish we had have done this or that, or is, did you feel like you just did everything you could at that point in time?
0: Uh, okay. So to be fair, I felt like we did everything we could. Um, but knowing what I know about those last 10 weeks and how much the chemo really did destroy his body. Cause mm. I think ultimately it was a combination of chemo and cancer that killed him. Yeah. Um, a, a part of me wishes that we could have taken the time left and just let him be right. And, and not, and he would never have done that because his, his will was to stay alive and to fight. Um, but I wish he would have had that hamburger. I wish he would have had that bowl of ice cream. Like we changed so many things, um, to be very, um, almost compulsive, right. About Mm. that fight and fanatical about it. And, and I, I, I'm sad that he maybe didn't necessarily, you know, enjoy or, or I don't, it's hard to say. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. no. No, I mean, I was able to
0: say goodbye, which is, you know, that's the best part. You know, you can actually say goodbye to someone you love, which sucks, but.
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you in that sense. Like watching Richard go through that. I, I, I then think, well, how would I want this for myself if this was me, you know, like, what, what would I want from my friends and family and what would I want from my, myself in the last moments? And it's, it's difficult. You know, Richard actually took the, the, the way where he, Uh, he went very um, holistic, you know, he didn't go through the chemo, he went, he went a a different approach. And you think to yourself, well, maybe if he had have done the chemo, you know, so there's always these second guesses. But at the at the end of the day, I think you're right, there's got to be a point where you say, I just want to enjoy my last bit of life, you know, and, um, and that that's a difficult decision. So I don't think you should have any regrets in that sense there's no there's no right or wrong answer with cancer it's it's horrible horrible experience so um i appreciate you sharing that with us thanks
0: yeah my my goal to be really honest to be fair i I, i'm this person that i feel like i need to have goals right and Mm. and you make the olympic team at at 20 1920 and and that's not the end of it for you right you have to figure out the next step and um i've always wanted to write a book i've always thought it was pretentious to write a book at 20 like who how do you know you know who are you right yeah um and it may be pretentious to write a book at 40, but I feel at this point that there's so many things that I would love for other people to read and relate to and share things that I've had to go through and um, necessarily overcome and, and bring humor and comic to it, right? And um, my hope is to write a book to be able to share that with people and, and to share some of those stories that are ridiculous, but also heart-wrenching and you, you feel those feels and you can kind of process it together, so... You'll see. Hopefully
1: that's coming soon. No, not hopefully. Listen to me. Okay. I had doubts about starting a podcast. I had many people around me tell me, do it, do it, do it. And it wasn't until the day that I just decided, today's the day I'm going to do it. And it's, and it, I had no idea what I was doing. It just, I just started it. And once it started, it, it progressed into something that now I'm truly proud of. You know, I'm speaking to an amazing woman like you who can share incredible stories. So listen, write the book. I'm telling you, do it. I'll be the first one to buy it. I'll guarantee you awesome. that. All
0: right, I'm doing it. I've actually already have about five chapters in. So
1: good. We'll, there you we'll, go. I'll keep working. Keep going. I want. It. I want to see that book. Okay. Yeah. Appreciate. It. Well, listen, I I, I uh, really thankful for your time today. I know you're busy at school and stuff, so um, appreciate this. Is there anything you want to leave us with?
0: I mean, I had all these stories I was going to share with you. Yeah. At, at this what, point, what yeah, we went in so many directions. What
1: what, <laughs> what stories have you got for us? You got another story?
0: I have, well, I have a plan, right? I'm always, I always have a plan. And I was really nervous to come on here because I, I look up to this podcast. I love watching it. And the stories have been so much fun that come out of it. And I'm like, well, what am I going to share, right? And So I have a stupid story. It's, it's going to be dumb, but Okay, so first off, I was going to introduce you know, that I'm so um, humbled to be on this podcast with you because I had a crazy crush on you, along with probably every other male sprinter in 2000, right?
1: <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> and, you.
0: But part of it was the accent. So here's the funny story. We're on the plane. And, and let me let me give you some backstory real quick. So I was 19 when I made the Olympic team. I had the body of like a 12 year old boy, right? Like I was very <laughs> underdeveloped. Um, and I had the mentality of probably a 10 year old girl, right? Like just boy crazy and, and never really experienced. You know, hadn't had a boyfriend, really hadn't had a real first kiss, all that junk, right? So, but I'm hormonal and I've got all this testosterone in me, like <laughs> I'm working out hard, right? So. <laughs> Everyone had warned me, you know, like the Olympic Games and the village, like it's crazy. And I hadn't had done any of that stuff yet. So for me, it was almost like a little scary. Right. Yeah. And I get on the airplane um, to Sydney with the US Olympic swim team and the men's gymnastics team, women's gymnastics team for the US is on there with us as well. Right. And I meet this guy who is Australian and of course he's so excited. We're all in our USA gear and you know, these teams, et cetera. And he's on the plane and he is just so excited to chat me up. Right. And I'd walk Mm. to the back and I'm stretching and and we're talking and he's cute. Right. But he's nothing of the gods of swimming that you guys were. Right. I mean, he's, (laughs) you know, shorter than me. He's kind of tiny. He's just this normal kid from Sydney. Right. Yeah. Similar age. So anyways, I am just like enthralled with his accent and I think he's adorable because I'm boy crazy. (laughs) <laughs> and I tell him that when we are finishing up, you know, the when we're done with competing, because of course that's priority. I'd love to see him because he asked, basically asked me out, right? Yeah, yeah. And he picked the dumbest, like smallest, littlest kid on the team to do this with. Like, what was he even thinking? I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> so we do our we do all of our races. We're all done, and we go to the home bar, right? The last night oh, celebrate. Yeah. And they, mm-hmm. do you remember they they called it the last lap, whatever. The last and, lap, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we get in there and he shows up and I had been now, now, mind you, I had been in Australia at this point for about five weeks and the accent as wonderful as it is, like I was kind of over it. (laughs) (laughs) So, So he shows up and you know, he's this big and which is fine. It doesn't matter if you're short, but it, for me, it was like, what was I thinking? Like, I don't even <laughs> really like this guy. And, th- and also kind of sketchy. Like, I don't know who this person is. And then the best part was my teammates um, and a couple of other guy swimmers. They all knew each other, right? All college swimming. So they knew about this guy, right? And they basically corner him and kind of wrap their arm around his shoulders. And they, they're towering over him. Mm. And they're like, hey, like, that's our little sister. Like, don't you dare mess with her, right? <laughs> he was so freaked out. He left.
1: <laughs> no doubt. I,
0: I was like oh good riddance right i mean it was my dad we're just like taking this on because of this silly accent but yeah yeah you know, there's fun but the uh, silliness of the games and we had a blast you know
1: i love it yeah we we had a lot of fun after the games at that last lap man that was incredible that place that was a lot it of fun.
0: it was i love dancing so it was like a dream you know different levels of of music different types of music different dance rooms i danced all night
1: i think Inexcess were playing there a few nights right
0: yeah i didn't i didn't see that one oh, yeah. my uh my memory of the last lap was bj bedford and christy Cowell on stage singing to dancing queen abba that was like <laughs> that was it
1: <laughs> it was wild actually yeah. like i've been to five games uh and that that's still my favorite i mean it was an incredible two weeks really the weather was perfect there was no traffic around it was just the the athletics was insane it was it was just a great experience okay. right
0: you can clarify something for me i was told that the whole city of sydney like the public transportation workers the service workers were given two weeks vacation so they could volunteer and help mm -hmm. is that true
1: yeah yeah absolutely no it was it was an all in citywide buy-in it's like we're putting on the best games possible and that's that's kind of the australian mentality it's like we're going to do it better than anybody you know and and even if that's true or not that's just the mentality of like we're going to we're going to put on the best show for the whole world, and people really got into it. I mean, they—they they were. I think it was the first Olympics where they asked people to volunteer, you know, like that. Where it was just yeah. incredible numbers of volunteers. And you're right, yeah. They uh, basically the whole city just shut down for the Olympic Games, and it was awesome. Well, it was
0: incredible because if you're on vacation for two weeks, of course you're going to party and live it up, right? Yeah. And so. And even having access, I mean, the way they did, it was so great. Like we had those passes, those all access passes to transportation. So you could get, and that was my family too. It wasn't just the athletes. So like you could get around the city and explore it. And I mean, it was beautiful. And then, I mean, swimmers are celebrities there, right? So it was incredible to be there and experience that. We didn't have that in the U S at that time.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal. What was it like walking out for your individual race? Did you swim the individual hundred?
0: I did. I swam the hundred, and I was so nervous. You know that like camera special effect where the, the, like they're looking at the person and the background zooms away. Like yes, yes. That's how the pool felt to me that day. You know, and I remember
1: the for, uh, just on that that camera aspect. I remember swimming in my lane. It was the first time they had that camera on the bottom of the pool. Remember that thing that just followed you, and yeah. I was in lane six for the the prelims and the semifinal. And that damn camera was in lane six. And I remember I'd never experienced it before. And I, I remember diving in, thinking, "Shit, what is that on the bottom?" And it just took my whole train of thought <laughs> away. This camera just following me. It was awful. I hated that. You know what's you know what's crazy about that? Okay,
0: so that camera actually documented. So I'm going to tell you another story. So that, that first race for me was hard. I was, I was scared out of my wits and I couldn't get all my superstitions, all my routines. I could not get in out of my head. Right. And so it was a crap race for sure. But I couldn't watch that race for like 10 years. My, my late husband at the time finally said like, we're going to watch it. So we watched it. And what had happened when we dove in the girl next to me did three underwater dolphin kicks under the bubbles Mm. that that camera caught. Oh, wow. But the officials wouldn't have seen it, and they didn't call it. And she ended up beating me, like from the dive, she beat me, because she came up, you know, a body length ahead. And then my brain is like, my my dives were bad, but they weren't that bad, right? Um, And I didn't know that she'd done that. So I lost the race before I started, of course, and I ended up getting 17th. So I didn't make it back to semifinals, which I should have. Right. And then watching that race, like actually watching the video and like, it's almost validation. Like, oh, she cheated.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Don't worry. There's plenty of that still going on to this day. So everybody's (laughs)
0: cheating. (laughs) But, you know, doing the clinic at Auburn with you and watching you teach how to dive. I mean, that for me made me a better coach with my developmental kids. because. Yeah, just it was so neat to see how you broke down, how to dive correctly and quickly, and um, and I still do to this day with my high school athletes.
1: Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's di- diving, I, f- I feel is one of the hardest things to change and correct. It's just one of those habits. It's almost like handwriting. Once you once you write a certain way, it's almost impossible to change your handwriting. And I, and I feel dives are very similar to that. They're tough to teach, but there are certain things that you can do um, mechanically and skill-wise that, you know, um, that the best athletes in the world are doing that, that I think you can put into your practice and your training. Let me ask you this. What, what makes Dave Saylor such a great breaststroke coach? I know he's a great coach, but why specifically breaststrokers? Uh,
0: wow. Okay. Um, I think, well, I'm going to think about this for a second, but what the first comes to mind is he's a technical coach, Mm -hmm. um, breaststroke. There's so many components technically, um, that I think can be variable, multivariable, right? Like it's the only stroke where you have backwards propulsion with your arms and your legs. And so he was able to break it down, um, and accept the different styles with different breaststrokers. Right. Mm. I mean, like Rebecca Sony versus Jessica Hardy versus me, like we all have very different styles. Mm. Um, but he would recognize that and, and work towards that. Right. So he had a heartbeat on the athlete Um, I don't necessarily think he's just a breaststroke coach, um, but I think he had natural breaststrokers in his repertoire where he was like, I'm going to push you to make you better. Right. Mm. Like recognizing for me that my hip ankle flexibility was terrible. Mm. Right. And doing specific stretches and exercises on dry land to make that better. Right. So he's kind of a master of cultivating what you need and tweaking a little bit and pushing you past that comfort zone. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. i got to get him on this podcast and dig into that a little bit. Uh, What about one of your best friends, Dave Dennison? Do you have a Dave Dennison story that you could share with us?
0: Oh my God. I have so many. I don't know if I can share most of them, but um, (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, for he and I, we, he said this, but when we were training together in 2004, you know, he had this tendency to get too intense, right? And those are his words, but yeah. he really did. And he was negative. Um, you know, he would always point out what people were doing wrong. And, yeah. and we were training with 16-year-olds that were blowing bubbles on the bottom, right? So, of course, it's sometimes frustrating. Um, but he and I, as much as we were teammates, um, we weren't really best friends close at the time right? We were close because of the bonds of training together and, you know, the sweat and the tears and, and really trying to like push each other to be better. That's how we were close. Uh, but I thought he was kind of a cocky jackass, right? Mm, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he thought the same with me. So um, it really, it, our friendship didn't really solidify um, until truthfully his accident. Um, I'll never forget the night I got the call and, and heard about it. And I was, I decided to fly out to Colorado um, to see him at Craig hospital because he just meant that much to me. I knew him you know, I, I loved him. He was my training partner, he's like a brother. Um, and then going out there and seeing him, I think that in his mind was very impactful for our friendship, right? Yeah. Cause that was a turning point in his life. Um, and then over 10 years going back to Auburn every year to do the clinics with him, to mm-hmm. raise money for his, you know, medical expenses and things like that. And to just bring awareness, I mean, he, you know, he is like one of, he's my favorite speaker to listen to. And yeah. I've, I've heard his variations of his speech, you know, probably 20 times. And every time I laugh and cry, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think over those years of developing the bonds of working together really uh, solidified our friendship, you know, but I mean, we still joke, we, we have this, we did this drill um, CD with Glenn Mills with Swim TV mm-hmm. um, when we were training. And we're back-to-back bald heads and we, we always joke about it. Like, God, we, we look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just as uh, – he his sense of humor is the same as mine. If we got on this podcast together, you probably wouldn't be able to watch any of it because it's all <laughs> terrible, inappropriate jokes. And um, But it's fun. It's just fun to laugh with him and, and have that friendship over so many years.
1: Yeah, he's a good dude, no doubt about it. Um, leave me, let's uh, leave everybody with this. In terms of um, – being a role model for young women, like there's a lot of young girls these days struggling. I mean, uh, we're going through something we've never experienced before. And I hate to say that the the rates of suicide are probably at their highest right now in terms of um, where people are at with their mental health and, and um, a lack of confidence. How, you know, what can you tell, what would you tell young women that are experiencing, you know, um, struggles in their lives right now?
0: Oh, that's a tall ask. I think um, I take a lot of responsibility in making sure my words are, are, are good, but um, you know, there's something to be said. A couple of things come to mind, put the phone down for one, mm-hmm. right? So I recognize that this idea of mindfulness and meditation and recognizing how you're feeling while you're participating in an activity right? And for me, I recognize even as a, a grown woman who's confident in myself, if I'm scrolling through social media, I, it brings up negative thoughts, right? Yeah. And jealousy and emotions and, and just frankly, time wasted, right? Yeah. Where I'm not stimulating my brain and my body in a way that I should to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first advice would be to put the phone down, right? And stop comparing. Um, second is to move. Um, I, I have this passion for movement that um, has gotten me through a lot. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
0: um, I think part of it is just the chemicals that happen when you move, right? The endorphins, but then a part of it is this confidence in your body and yourself and knowing that, that your movement is making you feel better. Um, and then I think the third is that human connection, um, trying not to isolate yourself, right? Like true face-to-face communication with a friend you know not out not texting not over the phone but but feeling them right feeling their love feeling the energy and supporting each other and and accepting them of who they are 100 percent, and and back at you right
1: mm-hmm. um
0: because i feel like when you can be your true self i think that's the only thing i've really embraced with alopecia is this is me right i can't hide it i don't want to hide it um take me for what i am you know whether it's bald or or um you know, whatever that looks like, right. The strong woman, but I know that this is me and this is all I, all I am, all I can be. And yeah. once I accepted that and found people in my life that connected with me in that way and love me for me, like it's been, um, it's been the best thing to grow in confidence and love. And on the days that you struggle, we all struggle. I still struggle. Right. Yeah. But you have those human connections of people that you can reach out. I can call Davo and be like, I'm dying today. Like Mm -hmm. I miss my late husband, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Um, And he can say, I know you, I know you, I see you, I love you and you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this, you know, and that's important.
1: Yeah. Love it. Uh, Excellent advice. I appreciate Stace. Listen, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad we did this and recorded it for history. It's there forever now. So thanks for doing this. I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much, Brad. It's been wonderful. I really appreciate you. I'm so stoked you're doing it. Keep going because it's phenomenal to watch.
1: Thanks. Well, you're part of it. So I appreciate your your uh, words. Take care. Okay.
0: You too. Uh, right, bye. bye.